Greetings, everybody. What you're about to hear is an extra long interview with our friend Max Shanley from the UK. This is episode three of the Leo Panics Tribute Series. We're going to be talking explicitly about a book that Leo put out. It was his last book, officially. Uh, he released this with his co-author, Colin Lees. It's called Searching for Socialism, The Project of the Labor New Left from Ben to Corbin, as in Tony Bennett to Jeremy Corbin. It's a rewrite of his earlier book with Colin Lees called The End of Parliamentary Socialism? Question mark. Of course, that turned out not to be entirely true. Uh, and so they rewrote that book in the wake of the Corbin moment. It was Leo's final book, and it's an extraordinarily important one, not only for people in the UK context, but also in the American one, because the same pitfalls, traps, and contradictions that the Corbyn movement ran up against in 2019 are uh, going to be present in the American context. Of course, in a different institutional configuration, we don't have a parliamentary system, obviously. We don't have tight institutional uh, membership-based political parties, obviously. But as I talk about late in the episode, that can actually end up being a strength. But we will still undoubtedly have many of the same traps laying in our path if we are to broaden this left progressive movement inside and outside the state in the way that I've been harping on for the past four years. So everybody look forward to this interview. I really enjoyed it. It's a long one. Max has an, an encyclopedic knowledge of Labor Party history. And we're I'm, I'm going to take full advantage. I did. I, I let uh, Max rip. And it's a sight to behold. This is a very long episode. You know, hey, it'd probably be in my interest to break this up and give half of it out for free and half of it out to my patrons. That would be a lucrative move for me and my Patreon. But I'm not doing this for the money, y'all. I'm doing it in order to educate the masses. Political education, political education, political education, as Max says towards the end of the episode, that is the key to overcoming some of these impasses that we're going to be facing. And uh, if I put this behind a paywall, that's, that project is going to be very limited. So make this worth my while, folks. If you enjoy what you're about to hear, if you think it's important and you think that more of this stuff needs to be put out into the world, I implore you to head to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a subscriber today. I, of course, could build that Patreon by sloughing half of the good shit off behind a paywall somewhere, but I don't want to do that. I really don't want to do that. So support this project if you are financially able. Uh, we've got a nearly a two-hour episode here for your enjoyment. These episodes are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. So uh, please pay it forward. Patreon.com slash deadpundits. You know what to do. And enjoy the episode. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. This is episode three of the Leo Panitz Tribute Series, and I'm joined by none other than one of Leo's most prized pupils, if you will, towards the end of his life. Been on the show before. If you guys don't know him, you should know him. Max Shanley. How you doing, my friend? I'm all right, mate. How are you? I'm doing all right. I hear that uh, your prospects are looking up, but your uh, socialist credentials might have uh, taken a fall. You would. You own 10, 10 million in uh, GameStop shares at this point? Yeah, 10, How, 10 how's that million going for you? GameStop shares. Well, you know, the truth is I have about £90 to my name, so I've not been investing in GameStop. <laughs> um, but um, it's really interesting what's going on with all of that, to be honest. 
I think Leo would have been tickled, to put it lightly. He would have been amused. You know, he, I think his reaction might have been more similar to mine, which is like, I mean, this is hilarious, but my God, I hope that these hedge funds weren't like managing like a trade union pension. Well, that's, 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 the, that's the sick part of this, isn't it? They, like global capitalism and finance is so entangled, even in like workers' pension funds. You, you just hope that like a teacher's union isn't going to like lose, <laughs> you know, $100 million in its uh, value anyway. Yeah. yeah, I know, because to look at it on the face of it, it's there's a sort of tinge of, you know, class struggle to it all. It's these little, little, uh, you go on Wall, on the Wall Street Bet subreddit and you read, you can read people's stories as to why they've got into, you know, playing the game and whatnot. And a lot of them are, in, uh, are influenced by the effect that the 2008 stock market crash had on them and the effect that it had on their families. And you read story after story about people whose parents lost their homes and everything like that. And I think the person who put it best was this YouTube fellow, Lewis. I can't quite remember his, his surname. And he basically said, it's you know, what's happening is it's the invisible hand of the market being shoved straight up the hedge fund manager's ass. <laughs> <laughs> and like, that is basically true. Like, that's what's happening. What... What has basically occurred is this hedge fund, Merrill something, I can't quite remember the full name, have shorted 120% of GameStop's shares, which means that they've basically, you know, they don't own those shares. They've borrowed them them shares and they're going to have to pay out for them at some point in the future. And the people over at Wall Street Bets worked this out and they decided, well, you know, this hedge fund is betting on these shares dropping in price. So why don't we just make sure they go up in price, make some money of our own? And it's, it's really just that simple, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's really the real that scandal simple, of yeah. all of this. It's just that fucking simple that if you have a group of people who can manipulate the value of a share in one direction or the other, you can, you can, uh, you know, gangbusters. It's crazy. Yeah. And so, you know, you, I mean, you probably see it more in America than over here. It's not really a news story over here. But, uh, you know, I've been following what's what's going on online, you know, and I think it's CNBC has been putting out propaganda that this is, you know, they have malicious intent and they're, they're hacking the market. And they're not. They're, you know, they're just playing Wall Street at its own game. They're, they're and reading I think the tea leaves in the same way that, that these hedge funds have done to raid major corporations like Toys R Us was one, a more infamous one. Different mechanisms by which that was done, those sort of mergers and acquisitions and other kind of rating, but at the same time, very similar things. I mean, no, nobody, uh, you know, nobody cried for the Toys R Us workers who were laid off in droves and, and all the rest of them um, when these hedge fund managers were fattening their pockets. Exactly. But it's different exactly. now because, you know, the, 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 the shoes on the other foot, isn't it? Well, exactly. These, and that's pe- why these people are not supposed to lose. That's, that's why they're so pissed off. Right, because yeah. you know people have studied what they've done, and they're doing it to them, and they don't like it. And you know, you're quite right; they're getting a taste of their own medicine, and they can't. They don't like the taste; it's bitter. Bittersweet, my friend. Bittersweet. Bittersweet. I uh, love the lulls. I'm not much of a troll. Trolls usually come after me. You know, on, on the left, it's, it's just a certain kind of like um, unhinged. Like um, I don't know. What do you want to call it? Like there's a there's a there's a jouissance of <laughs> of like collective action that happens online that can be really ugly but when it when it you know when it turns in our favor it's also de- it's delicious max it's very yeah sweet. i know i mean I, I i think i said this to you earlier on you know 
the Wall Street Bet subreddit probably has the most accurate description out of any subreddit, which is which is like 4chan found a Bloomberg terminal. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I mean, you know, as, as I said, my response was, you know, I have no problem with trolls as long as they're honest, right? You yeah. Know, as long as they don't pretend to have, you know, really noble, you know, high aspirations. She's like, we're here to fuck shit up. We're here. Yeah. And, let's, and, and they did. And they did. And they, and they, and, and, but not just fuck shit up for the sake of fucking shit up, but to reveal no. a really essential truth. And you see from the highest levels, some progressives in Congress here in the States, you've got uh, Ro Khanna, Rashida Tlaib, Omar, AOC, uh, you know, even more centrist minded folks talking about, you know, just lampooning the notion that, that, um, you know, that, that this is in any way illegitimate or the result of like hackers or like some kind of an anonymous attack, right? CNBC is channeling the V for Vendetta kind of aesthetic, you know, that yeah. it's alleged to be behind these guys. They're, no, they're just placing bets. It's, it's, a, it's a goddamn casino and they yeah. placed the right bet uh, collectively and influenced the market. It's, uh, we'll see. What do you think? I mean, you know, we don't follow this stuff obviously in America very closely, but you know, you mentioned as well, and I'm, I think Grace is, has mentioned this as well, friend of the show, Grace Blakely, and you were talking about maybe making a, a socialist hedge fund. Are there any uh, plans it's in the works? Just, it was a joke more than anything. <laughs> but it, but with every, you know, we sort of joked after the, after the election defeat over here in 2019, we went out for dinner and we were talking about, you know, what are we going to do next? And, you know, I said, so we should set up a Marxist hedge fund that basically just fucks all the other hedge funds over. And we laughed about it, but that's basically what Wall Street Bets is doing. The idea that the left shouldn't be interested in these things is a bit ridiculous. Marx played the stock market. Did you know that, Adam? Yeah, I did. Yeah. 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 Talked it. Yeah. Um, the, the best meme to come out of this was the, the, the cover of like one of the Penguin Classic editions of uh, Capital Volume 3. And 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 the the photo, you know, if anybody's seen these Penguin Classic editions, it's like black cover, and there's a photo in the middle. And, I've got a few of it, them, yeah. The in, the inside of a, of a GameStop, because <laughs> of course that's where he talks a lot about, uh, you know, stock markets and and uh, collective enterprises of. Um, oh Jesus, I'm losing the. Uh, what Marx didn't call it. It was in stock market, joint joint stock corporations. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's it. Well, that's where they appear in Volume Three, if I'm not mistaken. That's one of the best memes to come out of this, but. You know, I mean, that's it though, right? I mean, this is the long haul of, of capital in the 20th century is the increasing imperative for states to back the continuing profits of capital. And so when we say, you know, well, it's, it's, it's the case that, you know, these, these Wall, St- Wall Street traders are not supposed to lose. Like, what do we mean by that? Well, they're not supposed to lose because capitalist states have become responsible for their earnings, for guaranteeing and maintaining their profits at all costs, transferring any uh, losses to labor, to the plebes, and uh, guaranteeing that that the winners just keep on winning. And you know, so long as the underlying kind of structure of that is is revealed here, like I got no problems. Troll away, my friends. Yeah. Troll away. Long live the trolls. Indeed, indeed, and that is you know what I just laid out there, detailed in. Very well, very <clears throat> extraordinarily eloquently by uh, by our dear late friend Leo Panitch and his co-writer Colin Lees in their updated version of the uh, Parliamentary Socialism book, Searching for Socialism, the Project of the Labor New Left from Ben to Corbin. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. How was that for a little segue? Pretty apt, I would say. I mean, that's that's really what we're looking at here. You know, they're, they're talking about these transformations of, of social democratic parties, right? into more bureaucratized like wards of the capitalist state. Part, a big part of that transformation was, you know, guaranteeing 
the profits of, of capital and increasingly finance capital, of course, was the story coming out of the 1980s. And of course, the 2008 crisis, which is something that, of course, certainly the, the socialist movement and Britain's going to have to contend with, particularly with the, uh, like the, the imbalance of power in, in the city of London. So let's kind of back up a little bit. Leo, what a guy. Let's talk about his, your relationship with Leo. It, it, it emerged in the last, much like my own, the last, you know, what, five, six, seven years? Yeah. Um, I think I first met Leo in November 2014. I was working on a book called The Best of Ben which was a collection of uh, Tony Ben's best speeches. I was working as a researcher for his former editor, Ruth Winstone, doing that book. And there was a quote in what was then the end of parliamentary socialism. Uh, And I wanted to try and get the full speech because I couldn't find it anywhere. So I got uh, Leo's email off someone and I dropped him an email and I said, duh, 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 I'm Matt Shanley, I'm doing this, yada, yada, yada. Don't suppose you got a copy of the full speech? And he emailed me back and said, I don't. And then we sort of struck up a, a conversation. And then when he was over uh, in London for the launch of the Socialist Register at Historical Materialism that November, we then met up and went for dinner and sort of became firm friends after that. You met him around the same time as I did. And one of the most, you know, the, the stories that you hear, we're not going to sort of, unfortunately, we're going to kind of skim over a lot of this, not only because, you know, this is now episode three of the uh, Leo Panic trip, I believe three, well, four, if you count my original eulogy and replay of, of our, our, our interview from years ago about his life, episode three. So we've talked a lot about the man he was and I don't, you know, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to bore the audience. I don't suspect, I don't, uh, I don't require that anyone out there in the audience listening to this cares as much about, you know, Leo Pan is the man as, as we did, as I did. And so we won't belabor those points too much. But that's just to say that, you know, he was always a guy that you could reach out to and he could, uh, you could kind of, I mean, I, I reached out to him maybe a, just maybe a year prior, maybe six months prior to, to your to you and, and, and you know, asked him about, hey, could you send me that link on of the video that you uh, cited about the <laughs> democratization of finance is something I'm really interested in, in, in studying. <laughs> and sure, here you go. Oh, it, it's very interesting. I didn't know that you were. That's my Leo impression, by the way. It's not bad, actually. It's not bad. Uh, for I don't non- think I, ha- I don't think I could do a Leo impression for a non-Canadian. Though, it's yeah. not bad. But um, you know, and, and somehow eventually became his student, and and he had a way of mentoring and and giving people confidence in in, uh, in droves. And you yourself, you know, you held you. And he dedicated his last like three books to you for fuck's sake, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and if that's not, if that's not, you know, a, a boost of confidence and, and, uh, I just want to say, you know, um, I reached out to him to, to do an interview on this book many, many months ago. And we kind of been talking back and forth and he owed it to me and I had to postpone and he had to postpone. And, and again, it was, you know, just so you sort of take it for granted. And last time I spoke, one of the last times I spoke to him, he was in hospital with, uh, you know, cancer at the time, not COVID, but cancer. And he said, well, why don't you talk to Max? You know, Max uh, would be as good of a person to to talk to uh, about this book uh, than anyone. And he had a, a a great faith in you as as a, a political commentator and a and uh, you know and your your intense knowledge of socialism in the United Kingdom. I mean, it's, it's just where, where does that come from? Where did you where did you kind of gain this encyclopedic you know knowledge of these movements that are were I should say 
four, five, six years ago, largely unknown among British socialists. So I used to work at a higher education college in uh, South London, London College of Communication. And in the four and a bit years that I worked there, I had to apply for the same job five times. Started out as an agency worker, then got a permanent contract direct with them, then a temporary contract direct with them rather, then a permanent job became available. Then a year later, that job was made redundant, had to apply again, and so on. And this kept happening. And it was an old printer's college. Used to train printers and typographists and whatnot. And so it had quite a strong union tradition within it. And the union was very strong. So, you know, I I fell into all of that. I don't come from a political background. My parents are largely, you know, apolitical. Um, But I've always sort of had a thirst for knowledge. And, you know, my union eventually ended up getting smashed. And most of the union reps got made redundant or reasons were found to get rid of them and so on. And so, you know, I sort of came up against the limits of, you know, industrial activity and started to look at the political side of things. I'd sort of come to the conclusion that I had socialist leanings and whatever. But, you know, I I wanted to learn more about it. And I knew that I wanted to get politically organised and be a part of of a group or an organisation and so on. So I did a survey of the left and socialist organisations in the country and the ones that were most, and you know, and the groups within them and the ones that are most serious about power. And that made me look towards the Labour Party at a time when the Labour Party and the Labour left weren't a serious force. But I knew that they had at least attempted it in the past. So the first political text I ever read was Ralph Miliband's Parliamentary Socialism. Hmm. And as I always used to joke with Leo, you know, I read Parliamentary Socialism, agreed with it entirely, but still joined the Labour Party, despite Ralph's warnings that it was a completely pointless endeavour. Was this before or after the collapse of the Socialist Workers' Party? I was, this was before, I believe. Okay, so you you could have become a trot. You could have, I could have uh, become a trot. Could have become a trot, right? That's not it's not an avenue that's as why is open uh, these days. A lot of I don't think I would have been a very successful Trotsky. Like, I like to think <laughs> they would have drummed you out pretty quickly, huh? Yeah, I like to think for myself, and you know, I'm quite idiosyncratic in my thoughts. So same, um, same. Yeah, so, I stuck around nonetheless. <clears throat> uh, I guess I like the abuse, but anyway, yeah, I think yeah. So I. So I read Parliamentary Socialism and then it was just a logical, and then that sort of made me really, I wanted to understand the Labour Party then fully. And so I started reading other books on Labour Party history, on the history of the Labour left. And then eventually I came across the end of Parliamentary Socialism. And, you know, I read that back to front several times over the course of the next few years. Leo always used to tell people that I knew every page word by word, which wasn't true. But, you know, I, I've i got a good memory, so, you know, I could yeah. remember key things and whatnot. So, yeah, so that's sort of how my sort of scholarship at the party began. And then I ended up leaving the college that I worked at and enrolling at university myself. Ultimately, rather unsuccessfully, I became too interested in organising and 
had absolutely no interest in academic work at all. Um, <laughs> but what I did do was I used the time to read and I probably read a hundred books a year over the three years that I was there. So yeah, so that's sort of where my sort of scholarship of of labour history began. Bit of an autodidact conditioned by your, um, you know, the impasses of your participation in the trade union movement. Pretty, you know, I don't say common, but somewhat common uh, in, in your generation. I'll say our generation of leftists, like elder millennials, if you will. Um, you're a bit younger than me, but you came into it younger and earlier than I did. And I mean, I think that's very common. And I think like, you know, it's sort of lampoon these days where this is kind of, you know, this kind of really um, like faux traditional, like mystified, you know, way in which, you know, well, you know, you're not supposed to become a socialist by reading books. You know, you're supposed to become a socialist by da, da, da. It's like, ah, hardcore, you know, trade unionists have become socialists by reading books for a very long time, my friend. Okay. Yeah. You know I, mean? I mean, they call it, I don't know if they get called this uh, across the pond, but over here they're called armchair socialists. Yeah. Because yeah. they're like sitting in their armchair and reading, but I love a good armchair. Yeah, just, I like putting my feet up and... It's it's insulting yeah. to workers. I mean, you read uh, you know histories of of workers in the Paris Commune, and maybe they were barely literate, but they prized their copy of the Manifesto. You know, as, as, exactly. they, as others you know might have prized their their family Bible. You know, and so books and the literary tradition has been so important to socialists, going all the way back to the utopian socialists and, the, and you know those pre Marxist uh, pre Marxian socialists. And I just think it's important that we don't, you know, it's, it's almost like when I talk about my, my history is similar. Like I, I became a socialist in coffee shops and cafes by myself reading dusty books. And, you know, that's sort of like not cool or whatever. You know, I only joined the labor movement later. Uh, I read Marx first and joined the labor movement second. It wasn't the other way around. And I, you yeah. know, it's sort of, sort of uh, frowned upon or something, but you know, I mean, come on, this is, you know, this books and histories have been really important to socialists going all the way back. And it's, it's wild that we have to make that argument, but we do. Here we are. I think the persistent pursuit of knowledge and truth is in and of itself, you know, quite revolutionary. Right. I mean, it's, there's no demo, like, you know, staunchly democratic impulse without it, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. yeah that's, that really backs it. So let's get in, let's get into to this book here. Leo Panich and his co-author, Colin Lees, who's a very formidable, <laughs> kind of very important man himself. Uh, some of the some of the best writing, I think, to come out of the Corbin movement uh, moment. Uh, what was it? It's piece in um, the New Left Review. Was it the New Left Review? Was a big essay came out. I can't remember. I'll have to post that up in the show notes. It's just as important for people, I think, to read and parse through. Um, I don't want to give Colin short shrift <laughs> while we're talking about this book in a, in a Leo Panich tribute series, but... Um, we are obviously going to be talking primarily about Leo and his past and his contributions here. What did that book mean to you when it came out? Let's talk about the first edition, um, The End of Parliamentary Socialism. Well, I was seven when that book came out, so I didn't read right, it right, right, right. when it came out. Right. Well, if, but, if anything, it was almost written for our generation what, yeah, well, before no, we, the, we came of age. Isn't that the remarkable thing about it? That was the thing. I mean, many years later, I after I got to know Leo and Colin – and we met up for lunch one day when Leo was was over here and I bought my copy of the book along because I wanted them to sign it, you know, because mm. I thought, you know, that I never thought I'd get to know them. But when I did, I was like, oh, I've got to get my book signed. And Leo wrote, Leo wrote in it, you know, you made it all worthwhile. And that was because they never expected anyone to read it. When it came out, it was largely ignored. The Labour left practically didn't exist by that point and so they never expected it to 
to you know be a popular popularly read text it was only you know after corbyn became elected that people started to actually look at the book again isn't it um, funny that that right at the moment where uh, perhaps like the uh, antithesis of their thesis <laughs> emerges in historical, uh, you know, in historical fact. It's like, you know, now all of a sudden we, we go back, we turn back to the book that said it wasn't possible. And yet that's the book that has more answers uh, well, than, than perhaps any other, doesn't it? Well, that's the thing. You know, I've always thought of the book as a guide more than anything. And same, same with uh, Ralph's book. You know, it, it's a guide more than anything. You don't necessarily have to fully agree with the conclusions. You can accept the conclusions for what they are and still, you know, and still hold out hope that you can resolve the 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 questions that it gives you. Right, right. Let's let's dive in. I'm gonna give you I'm gonna this is off the cuff. Maybe catching you off guard here, but you can handle it. Uh, Ralph Miliband's Parliamentary Socialism came out in '62, uh, if I'm not mistaken, or thereabouts. Yeah, early um, '60s. So that's that's the sort of conjuncture in which it emerged. Give us a quick little synopsis. Of course, it starts with the formation of the Labour Party in the early 1900s and carries us forward um, through the post-war party. Um, give us give us a little elevator speech on that book. What was it kind of a uh, place in history? What was its aims? What was its significance? What was its uh, what were its conclusions? So, from what I gather, it was written as a response to, um, in part at least, a response to Tony Crosland's The Future of Socialism. Tony Crosland was a sort of leading figure on the Labour right. He basically came, he wrote a book that basically said, you know the post-World War II reforms meant that, you know, capitalism didn't really exist anymore, or at least in the, in the you know, in the popular imagination of what it was, uh, no longer existed. You know, labour and capital basically had an equal footing, and so there was no need to go beyond the current economic system. Gains would be able to be won consistently over time. Um, there was no need to transcend transcend capitalism and so what Miliband really did was you know it's a response to that argument but also a study of the tendencies of the Labour Party as sort of a bureaucratic force in society as a mediator of discontent and to show exactly why the Labour Party despite however much it may claim to be a socialist party you know, the Labour Party, I think the opening lines of the book is, you know, of all parties that claim socialism as their creed, the Labour Party is the most dogmatic, not about socialism, but about the parliamentary system and the British state. Yeah. Um, one, of the, one of the best openings of any book that I can recall. Yeah, And then he goes on to basically explain how, you know, the ideology of the Labour Party, despite them calling it a socialism, it isn't, it's Labourism. And laborism is an ideology of social reform within the framework of capitalism with absolutely no ambition whatsoever to transcend that framework. And so, I mean, let's let's kind of spell out the arguments of Crossland, because in Crossland's mind, you know, the, these these uh, like these silly leftists were just superfluous. Right. It wasn't so yeah. much that they were wrong. It wasn't so much that what they were saying was incorrect. They were superfluous. Because of well, we, we, we don't need revolution. We we've already transcended 
all of that muck that you say that you're fighting against. We are moving as a society towards a unity of labor and capital wherein we can share in the collective gains and the fruits of this miraculous golden system, <laughs> golden era, you know, and, and, and move forward into to collective joint prosperity. So whatever it is that you say you want in this silly little revolution of yours, we've already got and we're getting in spades. That was the argument of Crossland. Uh, and so it was, you know, we, we say the labor right. They would, of course, reject that. And, and this is a theme that would, you know, that would uh, be carried forward and into every single instance of left labor upsurge um, as documented by, by Panitch and Lees in their book. And so really important stuff. This is a tradition that we don't have quite as explicitly in the United States, but it's one that uh, we desperately need to learn from because the prospects for social democracy, left social de democracy inside the American state right now are, are better than they ever have been since the 1930s. And of course, all of the pitfalls, traps, and contradictions entailed therein are, are waiting around the corner for us. Yeah. Uh, um, big time. And so <laughs> we got to get smart on this really, really fast. And so Let's let's jump to the latest edition. Um, uh, Leo and Colin updated this uh, their their book, of course, to try to come to terms with everything that had happened around uh, Corbyn's Labor Party. Yeah, uh, talk I, about that. I'm sure you and Leo, uh, you know, he, he turned to you quite a bit uh, for for inspiration and framing of, of these questions. Um, how did Leo and Colin and you in, in consultation kind of? frame the the rewrite of of this book so i think it's important if you don't mind me just taking a step back please please um because if you want to understand the politics of jeremy corbyn and john mcdonald you have to understand the politics of tony ben and the benite insurgency in the Labour party Absolutely. that began in the early 70s and ended really in the mid 80s um and that's what the first edition of the book, when it was known as End of Parliamentary Socialism, was largely about. It was about this attempt to transform the Labour Party from a Labourist party into a socialist party based around the commitment to wider democracy. Ben famously said, you know, in our long campaign to democratise Britain, we first have to start with our own movement. And that was about not only people not only Labour members and trade union members having more of a say over the direction of the party in terms of policy and strategy and organisation, but also building up their, you know, their capacities, not only as party members, but as, as the working class as a whole and being involved in, you know, the very basic practices of, of class formation to raise up the abilities of, of the working class from being, you know, the subordinate class in society to, to the ruling class. And so the first, you know, the first edition of that when it was the end of parliamentary socialism really traces the development of Ben as a political figure. You know, Tony Ben started off on the sort of centre right of the Labour Party. And it was through his experiences in office as a Labour minister that he was transformed into a left-wing figure because through his interactions with the British state, he realised how undemocratic it was and how people didn't really have a, have control over their own lives at all and how even elected governments didn't really have control. And all of this, and, and all of that is then compounded by the rise of the new social movements in the late 60s and early 70s, you know, the anti-war movement, the women's liberation movement and so on. 
And sort of the culmination of of Benism was the people who had been involved in those movements coming into the Labour Party to try to change the Labour Party to be more responsive to to outside causes and concerns and widening the Labour Party's understanding of what the working class was, that it wasn't just people in trade unions, for example, that, you know, it was much broader. Right, right. So in essence, what we're doing here is, I mean, this is, I love the way you answered. I, I, I like to ask general questions, vague, general, difficult, open-ended questions, because I, I, I'm curious where my guests will take them. And so where you've taken this is back to Ben. It's made me realize that. So, so in, in a roundabout way, we've, we've addressed the question that I've answered, which is that, how did you come, how did they come around to writing this book? I say, how did you, as I'm talking to Leo, how, how did Leo, Colin, uh, and Colin come around to writing, conceptualizing the rewrite of this book? Well, uh, if the first version uh, sort of traced this lineage from from Ben, you know, pre-Ben to Ben to, you know, the, the development of new labor, this latest edition, you know, sort of traces a different sort of path from Ben to new labor, almost back again to Corbin, but back that's again in a different actually, context. That's actually um, what I wanted the book to be called, you know, when they were oh, yeah. coming up with names of the book. Their idea was, you know, so searching for socialism from from Ben to Corbyn. I wanted to follow a sort of Hobbit line. You know, I wanted it to be called the Revenge of Parliamentary Socialism <laughs> from New Left to New Labour and back again. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's almost, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a rewrite, but, you know, the trajectory shifts and such that, you know, you have to kind of uh, tell the story quite differently. It's a, it's, a, it's a more optimistic book in that sense, but it's also, I mean, well, yes and no, because we obviously the contradictions abound as, as uh, you guys discovered in 2019 and, and afterwards. But um, yeah, so sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. It's just oh, interesting no, it's how- fine. It's, the story shifts when you have a redemptive moment, even if it was a you know a temporarily failed redemptive moment. Um, and so let's talk about the uh, the CLPD, the campaign yeah. for Labor Party democracy, where it just seems like you were headed towards that, which is kind of the the height of or the most kind of institutional development of of Beninism. Beninism, yeah. yeah, there it is. So the campaign for Labor Party democracy was founded in 1973 by Vladimir and Vera Dera. Uh, great name, Vera Dera. Uh, you've got you've got, uh, you've got Beninism, ben, Benism, and Vera yeah. Dera. I, I well, did you know what Benism was originally referred to? As? <laughs> no, I did. Benery. That was Benery. What, that Benery. That's yeah. what the civil service used to call it. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, during his time in office, he was trying to get, uh, um, trying to you know open up the state's trade genius. And, uh, right community campaigners you know in when he was secretary of state for industry and the civil service just just started referring to it as benary oh there's benary, this kind of yeah. benary going along <laughs> um, i bet he so, loved that you yeah. I, mean, I should i should jump in here you you told this story the first time you came on the show this was a couple of years ago now but you and uh, tony were were um you know close in his very late years if, if that's you know yeah, I think I the audience, knew, the audience kind of know about that yeah, I mean, I only I only got to know Tony entirely by accident. Basically, I was attending a public meeting, and that John McDonnell was supposed to speak at, and John McDonnell was supposed to be bringing Tony down for it was this was a meeting in Brighton, which is on the south coast, and um, about an hour away from London, and John was supposed to be bringing Tony with him. Well, John had a heart attack that day, and uh, but. 
Tony was intent on coming to the meeting despite the fact he was fairly frail by this point. So he got one of his carers to take him to uh, the train station and he got a train down. And John had said to whoever the campaign organiser was, uh, can you get Max to pick Tony up from the train station and take him down to the meeting and then take him home, which I did. And we struck up a conversation over the course of our journey back. And then uh, and then he asked me to come around again for a cup of tea in a few weeks. And that's really how our friendship started off. But like I say, this was really in the sort of last year of Tony's life. So the Tony Ben I knew is very different to the Tony Ben that others know. Sure, sure, sure. Bears remarking on that. It's a remarkable thing. Guy of your age to befriend uh, Tony Ben almost a centenarian by that by that point uh you know late late in his life it's, it's a pretty neat story yeah um, i have this really weird thing where i'm friends with people who are mass massively older than i am <laughs> <laughs> you're an old you're an old soul max like i've got you know like yeah. i've got friends who are in their 60s leo was in his 70s colin yeah. lees is 90 this yeah. year Jeez, like, I didn't know. I didn't know he'd gotten that old. I mean, yeah, yeah you're, you'll have no, you'll have no one to talk to when you're in your forties no. and fifties. For at some point, you no, you'll find down. all of us uh, just just thoroughly uninteresting. I, I'll, have to, <laughs> I'll have to be looking in the mirror and just start talking to people. Yeah, you'll just be wandering <laughs> through. We'll find Max wandering through graveyards, uh, talking to his old compatriots. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. <laughs> All right, back to the CLPD. Yeah, uh, I digressed. That was my fault. That's on me. Sorry. Let's pull it back. That's so on me. the campaign, so the campaign for Labour Party democracy was founded in 1973 by uh, Vladimir and Vera Dera, um, and it was formed in response to Howard Wilson's uh, announcement that the next Labour manifesto wouldn't include conferences, overwhelmingly agreed policy to nationalise the top. 25 British companies. Wilson just made this statement, you know, statement to newspapers after the policy was passed. Of course, this isn't going to end up in the manifesto. We're not going to enact it. And so the campaign was basically set up to make the Labour Party more accountable, more responsive to the needs, wants, and desires of the wider movement. And it started off with three key demands. The first was mandatory reselection for Labour MPs, which is basically a primary system, common, obviously, in America, but also in the rest of Europe. The second was the election of the leader by a wider franchise, because up to that point, throughout Labour Party history, the leader of the Labour Party had always just been elected by members of Parliament. Membership never had a say over who their leader was. And the third aim was that the National Executive Committee of the party as opposed to the parliamentary leadership, should write them, write the party's manifesto based on its, based on their annual program that the NEC already published every year. And so, I think the first meeting of uh, CLPD happened at first public meeting took place at conference nineteen seventy three, and I think something like two hundred people turned up. And then over the course of the next eight or nine years, it you know it's well to having thousands of members and having control over the conference agenda. And they were ultimately successful in winning a form of mandatory reselection for Labour MPs. 
and they were successful in democratising the election of the, of the leader of the Labour Party by an electoral college in which constituency Labour parties had, had had 30% of the vote and the trade unions had 40% of the vote. And Ben played a sort of key role in all of this. He wasn't involved in the foundation of CLPD or anything like that. But um, he was on the National Executive Committee and he himself had been work, trying to work through these questions. He published a pamphlet uh, in, I believe, 69, called, and I've got a copy of it somewhere in my room, called The New Politics of Socialist Reconnaissance, which was a sort of study of, of all of the new social movements that had arisen and their relationship with the Labour Party and how the Labour Party could become more responsive to it. Ultimately, he a few years later, he decided that, you know, the conclusions that he come to were fairly crude, but it's started those ideas going around in his head. And um, Ben essentially became a tribune for the CLPD and uh, uh, and its most effective communicator for its demands. And so, um, yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, no, it's all right. This is all this is all interesting. I mean, I I particularly love the way we're starting with that second, or that that second moment that that uh, Colin and, and and Leo outlined in the in the um, intro here. And I know we're definitely getting into the weeds here. This is from my uh, American. Yeah, audience. we're definitely getting I'm into the weeds here. I'm sorry for going. I'm sorry no. for going further back. Rather. No, don't. No, no, please don't. This is exactly where I wanted us to uh, to, to to end up. I like to start uh, right in the beginning and then and then peel back, get deep into the weeds. But I want to assure people we're, we're in the weeds now because we have the benefit of this encyclopedic brain of Max Shanley. Uh, so we're going to take a full advantage. But don't think that uh, if you pick up a copy of this book that you're instantly going to be lost in uh, sort of Labor Party history and, and names and figures and dates that you know you don't have a lot of context for being an American largely not schooled in the history and traditions of the British parliamentary system. Because they do start with kind of broad historical strokes and kind of um, – Typical, I mean, typical Panitch and Lee's kind of approach here. Anybody who's a fan of Panitch uh, will will recognize the framework immediately. Um, and he pull, they, pull, they pull back and contextualize the rise of these labor leaders as a result of great economic crises, right? And so I mean, we talked about the opening of Ralph's Parliamentary Socialism. I think their, their new preface is just as iconic. It should be anyway. They open the preface – each of the three great economic crises of the last century, the 1930s, the 1970s, and the decade after 2008, precipitated a crisis in the Labor Party. Each time, the crisis posed fundamental questions of ideology, organization, and unity, and ended up propelling into leadership a radical socialist MP from the party's left wing. In each instance, this produced a sharp reaction aimed at blocking whatever potential the crisis had for taking the party in a new democratic socialist direction. And in each case, Britain's relationship with Europe played an important role. And so they, they parsed out some really interesting parallels in all three of these. Of course, the first one was in response to uh, George Lansbury following uh, the crisis in the 1930s and Ramsay MacDonald's uh, capitulation, you'd say, in, in modern uh, language. Of course, the second one was uh, Michael Foote, who ended up uh, you know, basically ceding, uh, giving way to Neil Kinnock. Um, and of course, now we have uh, in the most recent uh, instantiation of this thing, uh, Ed Miliband giving way to Jeremy Corbyn. Very and interesting kind of um, 
historical parallels grounded in crisis, grounded in um, economic crisis, grounded in uh, party, intra-party conflict, um, as well as uh, the failure, uh, you know, um, coming from the ultimate inability to change the nature of the party. Um, and the reason why the reason why I thought it was important to to go backwards to begin with is because you can't understand the development of Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell as politicians unless you understand that that history. They were products of that period. Jeremy was incredibly active in the campaign for Labour Party democracy after after CLPD won won the constitutional change for the leader of the Labour Party to be elected by the membership. The following year, 1981, Ben ran for deputy, uh, in which John Landsman, uh, who went on to become moment- one of Momentum's founders in the Corbyn era, central figure to the Corbyn project, was, you know, uh, I think he was 23 at the time, and he was Ben's campaign manager. And they came within a whisker of winning, which would have been massive for the socialist advance in Britain. Would have been huge. Uh, he would have had his uh, the, the deck would have been stacked against him. Uh, you know, yeah. he, might, he might we might be uttering him uh, or uh, talking about Mitterrand in the same breath. Uh, <laughs> but but you know uh, you know I think this is all interesting because you know you look back and you know of course people you know this is far lesser known history because it's further back. But Kinnick Neil Kinnick uh, came up under the George Lansbury uh, era, right? Didn't he? And, and no, so, no, no. And so no, he didn't. Not Neil Kinnick. No, no, no. Not. Uh, my, I'm sorry, Michael Foot. Michael Foot. Michael Foot. Michael Foot. Well, my, my, my apologies. Michael Foot came up really under Bevan. Leo Collin and 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 Ralph, you know, focused on specific periods, but there were more turn up. You know, there were more rises of the Labour left. Right. Right. During that very, period. very easily could have talked uh, about, um, you know, the, the post-war era. They yeah. It's funny they go they jump from the 30s to the 70s. I guess you're well, right. I guess he wouldn't have been that old to go back to the 1930s and 40s. But w- yeah, w- what I'm really I mean, we should talk about Bevan a little bit. But all I'm suggesting is it's very interesting how uh, each subsequent subsequent uh, you know uprising uh, generation is is sort of conditioned by by the first uh, by by the one uh, prior to it, right? And yeah. So, I think that's the real critical takeaway here and that there's no reason to believe that, you know, the fire next time, as others have written, you know, won't be very seriously conditioned by the kind of conclusions and lessons that are drawn from from this moment today, which is why, you know, it's it is important to continue. What I'm getting at is it is important to continue beating that dead horse <laughs> in a way, isn't yeah. it? Because the sort of synthesis that, the, that, that emerges from this latest failure will, will undoubtedly condition how this pops off next time. And if it pops off next time. Yeah. Yeah. Right exactly. on. Exactly. Let's talk about Bevan a little bit because you're right. They do They do skip over that. That's really critical to understanding um, the frustration of the new left in Britain uh, against the kind of uh, the, the labor right. Can we take an even further step back for a second? Please do. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, one thing that's often forgotten, you touched on Lansby and everything, but was the, was the Socialist League of the 1930s under the leadership of um, of Stafford Cripps, who who later became a, a rather austere chancellor, chancellor of the Exchequer of Clement Attlee's government, but started off started off life as a Tory, became and then became a Marxist, but couldn't fully commit to Marxism because uh, he was a devout Christian also, and he he couldn't give up on the idea of God. But the Socialist League was set up in the nineteen thirties. Of 
sizable sizable in uh, organization campaigned for the creation of the popular front with the low party and the communist party against fascism supported rearmaments at a time where you know you had george lansbury's leader who although he was on the left you know he was a pacifist uh-huh. uh which ultimately led to his downfall as, as leader bevan was a member of the socialist league I mean, one of the interesting things about the Socialist League was they managed to pass Labour policy that stated that, you know, an incoming Labour government would have to pass an an enabling act to establish a temporary dictatorship so that they could crush the capitalists. (laughs) (laughs) You think in the context of the 1930s and uh, stuff like that, quite, quite wild. And so both Bevan and Cripps and many others ended up being expelled from the Labour Party. It was, you know, the membership of the Socialist League uh, was found to be incompatible with the Labour Party, primarily because of their desire to set up this popular front with the Communist Party, which, you know, in British high society was was seen as being very, you know, held in much disdain. And so, yeah, so that's the real sort of first attempt to sort of drag the Labour Party towards a sort of actual socialist direction. And then... After the war, Bevan becomes sort of the standard bearer for the left and the Labour Party, attempts to become leader a couple of times, fails, eventually gets elected as deputy leader. This is during the height of the camp, you know, the popularity of of uh, the campaign for nuclear disarmament. And um, Bevan, up to that point, had been a, a strong proponent for, you know, unilateral nuclear disarmament. But then the pressures of Labourism led him to give up on that and to basically make a speech at Labour Con- Labour Party conference, where you know he was he was basically saying that you know people were fools for thinking that you could unilaterally disarm and so on, and Bevan sort of lost his his left wing credentials with that. Michael Foot was politically sort of brought up at Bevan's knee. He was his sort of pseudo son. He remained committed to the cause of unilateralism. But the Bevanites' conception of the construction of socialism was fundamentally parliamentarist in in nature. Their plan was basically to just slowly nationalise all of British industry. And then once it's all in public ownership, well, then it's socialism, isn't it? Right, right. Without really diving into the dynamics of, well, you know, what about the state? You know, how do you transform the cap- a capitalist state into a socialist state? Or do you even need to? You know, is it just going to be, you, over time, is it not just going to become a benevolent body? They didn't right. really focus on the questions of power so much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Similar to the the mindset of an Anthony Cross on which we started this conversation, which is that, you know, the laborism would just sort of uh, consume the state and society and we'd have uh, this nice equal sharing of power trade units would sort of run the industries and the commanding heights. And, uh, and yeah, I sort of uh, this, I mean, up, 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 up and away. And of course new labor comes about to make the now undeniable claim that in order to even, you know, it's not so much that we need to sort of continue fighting forward, you know, forward hoe for socialism. It's actually much more dire than that, that in order to uh, defend the limited gains of the post-war governments, we need to go beyond 
this and into socialism just to maintain the kind of mere social welfare state that, that we have. And so... Um, yeah, that, that was basically the argument of the Benites was that, you know, if we're going... The, the post-war consensus, you know, you need to factor in this is in the middle of a response to the 60s, in the middle of the 70s, you have the oil crisis. You know, there's a big sea change in in the ideology of the IMF. Bretton Woods has broken down. There's a turn towards, you know, uh, what we would now call neoliberal economics. And so it was a question of either you go back to the old way of doing things you know, of what life was like for people prior to the Second World War, or you go beyond capitalism. And Benism was an attempt to articulate and find a way to go beyond the framework of, of capitalism through an electoral project. So let's get to the... the- you know, we, we've we've spent the last hour winding us up uh, to you know to the first twenty percent of the book. Let's let's uh, jump through the last eighty percent here. <laughs> that's my that's my fault. That's my apologies for getting too caught up in the wind up. But it's the wind up I think that's going to deliver the best results to kind of understand where we are today. So let's kind of gloss through the defeat of uh, veneration, venerism, ben- 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 benism, benery, uh, the defeat of benery into New Labour. Right. So basically what happens is Ben runs for deputy leader in 1981. He loses by less than half a percent. The Labour left then do a deal with the trade union bureaucracy that so long as the party leadership agrees to maintain the policy gains of the membership, you know, uh, which had swung fundamentally to the left, that they would stop fighting for constitutional reform and the democratisation of the party. They did this in uh, 1982 uh, in a place just north of London called Bishop's Dortford. And so they had this meeting and they hashed out this agreement and that was signed. And then the Falklands War happens. Up to this point, Labour has actually been polling higher than the Conservatives. Margaret Thatcher was deeply unpopular, but the Falklands War led to a big wave of jingoism in the country. And, you know, the public swung behind her after that. And so Labour then catastrophically loses the 1983 election. Ben is thrown out of office. He loses his seat. Neil Kinnock, who was Foote's protege, who has sort of legitimised himself in the eyes of the right wing of the party by being one of the few of the nominally left-wing MPs that refused to vote for Ben in that deputy leadership election and instead abstained. And it was those abstinations that led to Ben losing that deputy leadership election. He then becomes leader of the Labour Party off the back of his left-wing credentials you know, Kinnock spent most much of the 1970s quoting Marx and Lenin and Gramsci. And then uh, he gets elected leader of the Labour Party and is basically captured by the right. And that's really where the start of what we would now consider to be new Labourism began. It was Kinnock's project was dragging the Labour Party away from the left and back to the sort of mythical centre. You know, the centre isn't something static, but it is in the minds of right-wing social democrats. 
Right. Very similar things happen with, of course, Jimmy Carter clearing the way for Reagan. You know, it's not often, it's not, people don't talk about this stuff enough. We don't remark upon it enough that uh, these right social Democrats paved the way for neoliberalism in the 1970s, well before Thatcher and Reagan could solidify, you know, those gains. Yeah. So Kenneth, story there. So Kenneth concedes much of the party's agenda to the right, loses the 87 general election, concedes even more, loses the 92 election. Then his shadow chancellor, John Smith, becomes leader. John Smith came from the old right of the party as opposed to the new right of the party. He was basically a traditional social democrat, trade union orientated to a limit, but really the sort of last of the sort of old Labour leaders of the party. He's leader for just under two years before he has a series of heart attacks and dies. Everybody believed that his protégé, Gordon Brown, would succeed him as leader of the party but the new right wing of the late party swung behind Tony Blair. And then Blair basically dealt the final death blow to, to Labourism entirely. He gave up even the idea of sort of worker-orientated social reform within the capitalist framework and basically, you know, a- agreed with the, uh, the maxim that, you know, there is no alternative. And so you then, you then have the Blair and Brown governments from 97 to, to 2010, there's then this sort of ideological battle in the Labour Party, still with, within a sort of social democratic framework rather than a socialist framework. The two Millibands, David and Ed. Ed is successful because the trade unions get behind Ed because they see that as a sort of return to social democratic politics. And, and David was far more representative of Blairism and they they wanted to break from that that was largely due to the fact that in the early 2000s from the early 2000s onwards there was a leftward shift inside of the trade unions more left-wing leaders were being elected and obviously what can't be forgotten as well is one of the big things that Blair did was he abolished clause four of Labour Party a symbolic commitment to the nationalization of the means of production distribution and exchange that was really his sort of like killer blow to Labourism of old. Fast forward again, 2010, Ed Miliband gets elected, is himself sort of still has good social democratic instincts, but is surrounded by a parliamentary party of people well to the right of him, but frightened to associate himself with those to the left of him, having grown up in, you know, the 1980s and having been a part of the the Blair Brown era and then the trade unions obviously as I just said had massively swung to the left the key union having been Unite and uh, Unite developed a political strategy of basically trying to get more working class representation in parliament and they they decided to fight a selection in a place called Falkirk in Scotland the previous MP had been thrown out of the Labour Party uh, after he got massively drunk in one of the House of Commons bars and started a fight with numerous Conservative MPs. Um, <laughs> and I think I think he got arrested. I think he may even have been convicted of something. I'm not quite sure. No, I fail to see the problem with any of that. But oh yeah, uh, I know. But it wasn't I, because he was, you know, like he had like ideological <laughs> hatred for them. 
It as you guys have said, he was old mate pissed. did old mate did nothing wrong as far as I can yeah. say. I don't know. Yeah. He was ba- he was ba- <laughs> pissed. So night choose a candidate, Carrie Murphy, who will later become a sort of central figure for the Corbyn project. And um her opponents basically accuse her of her and Unite of 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 tampering with the selection, of signing up people to Labour Party who don't even know that they're signing up to Labour Party. And so Miraband then uses this an, as an excuse to change the way in which the lead, the leader of the Labour Party is elected so that it so that in his mind at least the unions have less control over Labour Party affairs. It's quite ironic because he wouldn't have become leader of the Labour Party without the trade unions, but he wanted rather than trade union members being affiliated on block by their leaderships, he wanted them to be individual uh, affiliated members of the party. And basically he got rid of the electoral college and replaced it with a one member, one vote system, which at the time the Labour left campaigned against because they saw it as an attack on, on trade unions. Little did they know Adam. Right. That it would ultimately become their savior. I would hate to be. On, I would hate to be on record going against that because you'd have to eat shit for the rest of your career. I was, probably, I was but, against it. John, you know, I mean, John I mean, Lansman was against it. Yeah. To be clear, this was an effort to sort of um, defang the unhinged radicals who have way too much time on their hands. Of course, this is a very nasty framing of it, but we can we can kind of clown ourselves a little bit here, Max. The unhinged radicals like ourselves who have way too much time to spend at meetings. Yeah, um, in favor of empowering the kind of old blokes who 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 are you know can't be bothered with going to meetings and would set or rather sit around watching footy on the telly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, then then go to meetings and, and vote in person, and then ended up empowering uh, the Corbyn movement. Uh, yeah, this is one of the great so one of the contradictions. Thing, one of the things it introduced was it in, introduced a new category of sort of semi membership called registered supporters which would mean that for a nominal fee, people who support the Labour Party could register as supporters and vote in leadership elections. And the reason why this was introduced was because the the parliamentary Labour Party and the right-wing Labour Party were convinced that the British public were even more right-wing than they were. So that would make them more electorally popular. And demand an even further shift to the right. Little did they know that did not work in their favor at all. It did not. It did not. So um, take us up to that moment. Of course, this is the final crisis that uh, Leo and Colin outline in their book. Of course, an economic crisis uh, propels a left labor MP into the leadership position wherein they are faced by all of the contradictions of um, leading a bureaucratized top-down state with very little democratic participation and uh, democratic culture and state and society and all the rest of it. Let's go there. Of course, we know how it ends. Well, yeah. we actually, let me, I take it. We, we, we have no fucking idea how it ends, Max. <laughs> I don't want to go on record saying it's that a uh, and, and, have to, story. and have to announce. Yeah. I don't have to, uh, like I mentioned before, answer for that 10 years down the road. But uh, yeah. The latest, it's a, it latest. is a never-ending story. Yeah, but yeah, the, the fire this time, how did it crop up? Okay, so just to go back again, I'm sorry to <laughs> the listeners for my constant jaunts back and forth. I have an erratic mind. I can't help it deal with it. Um, so in 2010, there's a hung parliament 
Labour is flung out of office, the Conservatives do a deal with the Liberal Democrats to form a government. They implement austerity, massive cuts to public public and social expenditure. Britain sort of goes into its own social crisis as well as still dealing with the economic crisis of the fallout from 2008. Miliband runs on a, in the 2015 election on a sort of austerity light agenda. He's not committing to rolling back austerity. He's sort of saying, you know, we're still going to make cuts, but, you know, there'll be Labour cuts. They won't be that bad. Uh, and the British public decided, well, you know, uh, better the enemy you know than, than the one you don't. And so they vote for the Conservatives. The Conservatives win by a small the election by a small majority. Miliband then resigns as leader of the Labour Party and a leadership election occurs. No one at the, t- at the time, the idea of running a left a left winger in that election was sort of thought of as nigh impossible because we didn't have the numbers in the PLP and the Parliamentary Labour Party were the only ones who had the right to nominate a candidate. And so... There wasn't originally there wasn't going to be a left winger in the in in the election at all. Then the campaign for Labour Party democracy put out a call for a left winger to stand. They initially tried to get John Trickett, who had been a minister without portfolio in Miliband shadow cabinet, and is a left winger. They tried to get him to stand, but he refused. And then, sort of a an internal sort of lobbying campaign began, which then culminated in quite a public one with hundreds of thousands of people signing a petition for somebody from the Socialist Campaign Group, which is the left-wing parliamentary grouping of the Labour Party, to run in the leadership election. And all of this culminated in a meeting of the Socialist Campaign Group where John McDonnell had tried to run for Labour leader before in 2007 against Gordon Brown, and had tried again in 2010 but couldn't make it on the ballot. Diane Abbott ran in the 2010 leadership election, but she didn't do very well. So they're all looking around the room, and then someone turns to Jeremy Corbyn and says, it's your turn this time, mate. And he goes, all right then. <laughs> and so there's this then mad dash to try to to get him nominated. A large part of the reason that he got elected was because there were a lot of new MPs who had been elected in 2015 who were, not all of them on the left, but they owed favours to left-wing activists and they nominated Jeremy as a sort of, you know, fulfilling that favour. Mm-hmm. Didn't think anything would come of it. Think didn't it think, a, any, a, a didn't think anything would come of it at all. Yeah, yeah, cash I mean, in a favor with without with little risk. Uh, I mean, just as a sort of just sort of personal story about that, I was on the Young Labour National Committee at the time, and the day Jeremy decided that he was going to run for, well, Jeremy was chosen to run for leader. I was supposed to meet my mate Alex and uh, John Lansman for a drink in the Red Lion pub, which is just outside of the parliamentary estate before me and Alex had to go to a Young Labour National Committee meeting. And Alex had been a trade union organiser running parliamentary selection campaigns. And so he'd basically gone around to all these candidates that he got selected, calling in favours, saying, if we have a left-wing candidate, will you 
will you nominate them as you know as a favour to me really? And various people agreed, but there still wasn't a candidate. So I was due to meet for them for a drink to see how everything was going, and then me and Alex were going to go off to the meeting. And so I got to the pub and I was waiting around. And no one came out for, you know, half an hour or whatever. And I'm thinking, fucking hell, where are they? I'm dying for a drink. We've got to go to this meeting soon. And then Alex comes out and he goes, oh, John's going off to a meeting of the campaign group. They're deciding whether or not they're going to run a candidate. So me and Alex then go off to party headquarters just down the road from Parliament for this really boring meeting. Basically, we did a deal with the sort of uh, soft right on the committee to block Young Labour from nominating a candidate whatsoever because there was a faction on the Young Labour National Committee that was allied with Liz Kendall, who was the sort of hard right candidate. And they wanted Young Labour to nominate her, and that would have just been disastrous. Liz Kendall, in the end, only got 4.5% of the vote in the leadership election. So you, you can imagine how, humili- how humiliating that would have been for Young Labour. Anyway, we're sat in this meeting and me and Alex both get a text from John saying, Jeremy has agreed to stand. The meeting ends. Me and Alex then go for a wander around Westminster whilst we're mate- waiting to meet up with Landsman uh, to have something to eat. And we get a text from the chair of Young Labour asking us if we wanted to go for a drink with them in the pub. They'd never invited us to the pub before. We were left-wing troublemakers. They didn't want anything to do with us. So we were, you know, this is interesting. Let's go and have a drink with them. So we so we get to this pub and we sit down and the chair asks everyone around the table, who are you supporting and who or who do you think is going to win? So various people say, oh, I'm backing Yvette Cooper. I think she's the right person for the job. I'm voting for Andy Burnham. And then it gets to me. Obviously, I've got to represent our boy Jeremy, don't I? So just off the top of my head, I just go, I'm supporting Jeremy Corbyn. We're going to inspire hundreds of thousands of people to get involved with politics for the first time (laughs) and change the future of the country. And they all laughed at me. (laughs) And they all just burst out laughing. They thought it was hilarious. Yeah, how'd that go? <laughs> yeah, how did that go? So yeah. I remember I emailed Leo that that when I was in a cab to go and meet Landsman for something to eat to discuss what the next steps for the campaign were going to be. Mm-hmm. And I said, Jeremy's uh, Jeremy's going to run. We think he should be able to get on the ballot. Da-da-da-da-da. And um, Leo was like, oh, I don't think this is going to happen. he had to rewrite a book for it so, yeah so uh, then so jeremy agrees to stand we've managed to cobble enough nominations together to get him on the ballot the night before nominations closed uh, i'm sat at my room sat in my bedroom at university john landsman calls me up to let me know that he's pretty certain Jeremy's going to get on the ballot. At this time, Jeremy was a hundred to one candidate on the betting websites. So I was thinking, right, I'm going to put a hundred quid on him. Right. So I'm on the phone to, I'm on the phone to Landsman. I've got my computer up. I start doing that. I, I type it all in and then I carry on the conversation with John. And then I go back to doing an essay. 
Mm. And I completely forget to place the bet. Oh, <laughs> fuck. You could have you bankrolled the entire socialist movement. Uh, well, I would have made about... you had a little more. Yeah, I would have made about 10 grand. Mm. Um, but... Mm. Um, but anyway, so there's no insider trading on those betting sites. You, no, know, you could have had absolute knowledge that this was going to happen. You know, you start yeah. pooling all your friends' money. Yeah, look so into that next time that, that'll that'll start our hedge fund. Um, yeah. Going so the next day, with 30 seconds to spare, Jeremy Corbyn gets on the ballot to be leader of Lopi, and then there is this sort, of, and then people just start piling in. It wasn't planned. It wasn't organized. This sort of spontaneous movement erupted, a movement of movements. Corbynism wasn't a movement in its own right. It was a culmination of the anti-austerity movement, the climate movement, and the anti-war movement. All these people who, for years and years and years, hadn't looked at the Labour Party as their political voice, dived in. And then Jeremy Corbyn wins by an overwhelming majority 250,000 new people join the Labour Party. 300,000 new people join the Labour Party. And that's where Corbynism began. I can't believe it's taken us this long to get around to it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the, well, this is really, really, I mean, because again, you were in the room, so to speak. Well, sometimes quite literally. I re- um, also, I remember when the first poll came out that showed that Jeremy was going to win 60% of the vote in the leadership election. I called up my mate Alex, who I was referring to, who was the head organiser of the Corbyn campaign. And I said to him, is this true? And he said, yeah, based on the returns from the from the phone banking, somewhere between 59 and 60%, because the Times had, the Times newspaper had done a poll and it said 60%. So I immediately shot this off to, to Comrade Panich, saying, look, I told you, he's yeah. going to win. And Leo was like, I don't believe this. This isn't true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Always skeptical. I mean, he had a lot of reason to be skeptical. He had a lot of reason to be skeptical. Let's talk about the two things that, you know, really, um, you know, I don't want to sum up the book this way. That would be rather crude. Uh, It's very difficult and contradictory. And he has a lot of, you know, they have a lot of criticisms of the Corbin project and Corbin moment and the kind of contradictions and how they did or did not face those down and how we might do them, uh, you know, do that better. I think that those are the real critical takeaways of this book. Uh, but you, of course, not being an author, let's focus on your personal experience here and your knowledge of the your extensive knowledge of the history. There's two things, of course, that you know among many, many others, but two prime kind of uh, moments here that can be found in uh, two of these upsurges that are uh, highlighted in the book that we've been talking about today. Of course, the first one is the basically the the idea that the conference uh, driven by the membership is to dictate the policy of the Labor Party, which is obviously one of Ben and his his cohorts' most critical victories. And then, of course, uh, Red Ed Miliband's um, somewhat accidental, well, absolutely accidental empowering of the, the broader membership when it comes to one person, one vote. So talk about that. Talk about what, what that means. What's the significance of, of those victories going forward and, and how we can continue laying foundations to finish up here for future struggles? I think what it means is that moving forward, lay party is entirely susceptible to external forces if those external forces can be organized effectively. If you can sign enough people up to the lay party who are, who are interested in interested in your ideas and your politics and you run a leadership election you could be elected leader of the Labour Party 
it's not just a tiny, uh, you know, it's not just a a small number of people deciding deciding a Labour Party's political future anymore. It's actually it actually provides the possibility for a mass politics. Right, right. That, that can that can go that can run in many directions, though, can't it? I mean, the, with, yeah. the, with the celebrity that a lot of people have these days, you could see something really cynical uh, take place in the coming, you know, decade or so, which well, might cause people to try to, to to rethink the the opening of party democracy in that way. I know, and I, and and the thing is, is that you know, ultimately, Corbynism failed to democratize the party. The pressures of Labourism meant that it. You know, it did become incredibly parliamentary focused rather than extra parliamentary focused. Their politics may have been extra parliamentary orientated, but the pressures primarily of Brexit meant that what went on in Westminster really was all that concerned the leadership and the constant need to defend the leadership from the forces of reaction inside and outside of the party meant that, you know, the key project of actually transforming this laborist party into a socialist party never really took place, you know, and often, and often at times the leadership worked against that happening as well because they felt that it was the best way of, you know, keep keeping the party united. This has always been one of the biggest problems that, the Labour left has been unwilling to contend with, which is the Labour right will fuck the Labour left over time after time to secure their own legitimacy. But the Labour left still thinks that it has to appease the Labour right in a way that the Labour right has never felt it needs to appease the Labour left. It is funny, isn't it? That sort of lack of uh, reciprocity there or, or whatever you want to call it. It's, it's bizarre, isn't it? And I think, you know, one of the things... I'm not quite sure that like Leo or Colin spell this out explicitly, but I think, you know, their exasperation about the failures of the Corbyn movement to kind of move, move the ball forward reflect the fact that this was a remarkably short period of time. Yeah. Compare, you know, compare, compare the, 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 the Benite kind of moment, which, which spanned decades, you know, compare, you know, three months. Right. That's I mean, how com- long Corbynism lasted. It's astonishing. I mean, compare how how long the post-war labor left had to kind of come up against those contradictions and fight yeah. against them in a variety of ways. And we had four fucking years. And if it all sort of wraps up and culminates and in, in, in we turn the page on, on that chapter, um, you know, I'm not sure that we will have gained much going I mean, forward. If I, if I may paraphrase the old Moore, you know, the, the defeat of, of Benism was a tragedy and the success of Corbynism was a farce. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not, 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 not a farce of intentions or, or what have you, a farce of just... I'm not convinced that if, if we, yeah, turn the, turn the page on this, ultimately that, that we're laying appropriate foundations going forward. And that's kind of, you know, I'm heartened in, you know, in the U.S. context by the continuation of the Bernie Sanders moment by, like, say, the squad and other progressive elements inside of Congress. Of course, are they socialists? No. Are they working to democratize the state and you know, have an inside-outside approach? No. But I am heartened that the the, the Sanders chapter has not, uh, that book has not been uh, slammed shut in quite the same way as uh, a lot of people in, in your country would like to see the Corbin moment slammed shut because we still have a lot to, to do. <laughs> there, are, 
And so I don't know, um, by way of wrapping up, by not wrapping up, give us some of those outlines. What is the work that still desperately needs to be done in order to make sure that 10, 20 years hence, there's some real structural benefits that can be grabbed a hold of in the fire next time? Three words, three of, well, six words said three times. Political education, political <laughs> education, political education. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hey, that's that's why I do this. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, what what are some more kind of structural, organizational, institutional transformations that we'd like that you would like to see happen? And we need and how, to de- how might the Labour Left forward? needs to develop an agenda for what type of party is needed to enter the state to transform it and transform the economy. What would a socialist party in the 21st century actually look like in Britain? You know, what would it look like? I don't know. Not off the top of my head. Up to this point, the Labour left has always been focused on incremental reforms. You know, if we open this, if we, if we change this rule or that rule of the constitution, then the membership will have a bit more say over this and whatnot. It needs to start thinking bigger picture. It needs to think of what would a new model Labour Party look like. Now, there's a tremendous upsurge in the younger ranks, of course. You know, oh, yeah, Labour is just remarkably, I mean, they're just collectively insurgent at this point, as far as the, the greater apparatus of the Labour Party is concerned. I'm um, seeing um, lots of reactions against Starmer's, you know, um, multiple fuck ups over, over the past uh, several months. And and just you know, I mean, yeah, you know, it's. I think it's obvious that the boomers and certainly not even the Gen Xers who control the reins of the party right now can't completely write off the coming generation. What's that going to spell when they come of age? Are they going to be assimilated and co-opted into the party apparatus, or are they going to are they going to take that more radical posture forward and and, and actually rat, radicalize? the innards of the party uh, as, as others are trying to, to radicalize and, and change, uh, you know, outside of it. Exactly. I mean, I think so long as they stand by the sort of central thesis of the end of parliamentary socialism and, uh, and searching for socialism, which is, you know, unless you democratize the party, you'll never democratize the state. And unless you democratize the state, you'll never democratize the economy. So you won't be able to build socialism. So you really do need to start with the question of the party first. And um, I think in the immediate period, that is the main sort of task for the Labour left, because there isn't a party model, is there? You know, no one's really done much. No one has really done anywhere, really done much work on the question of, of, you know, what a socialist party would look like in the 21st century. Yeah, that's a shame, isn't it? I mean, you know, I mean, I, I'm implicated, you're implicated, we're all implicated, but our generation has has not yet risen to the to the challenge in in, in the similar way that if you've seen people our age, for fuck's sake, you know, of course, I mean, a lot I of that did, is we're we're collectively hobbled by neoliberalism. We don't come I of did age. Try. Yeah, I, you know. I and that's it's mentioned in the book. I wrote a paper. Ah, called, right, your paper yeah. called "Towards a New Model Young Labour," mm-hmm, which. Mm-hmm was framed as in a discussion about what kind of youth, so what, what would a socialist youth organisation in modern Britain look like? But really it was about the whole party. It was just easier to frame it in terms of the youth wing. 
Right. All right. So I'll exclude you from from that indictment. Myself, no, and others even, in my no, even I, but even then, but even then, you know, yeah, it's a collective project. No right. one person is going to have all the answers. Right. Yeah. And we do need that. We do need that. And I, you know, I look at the the kind of conversation and, and the sophistication in the sixties and seventies Marxists gen, that generation. You know, as it kind of came up or around the socialist register and, and uh, the new left review and just all over the place, you know, people debating with each other in very high level terms to think about the institutional social kind of political transformations that are required. And I just don't see that level. Uh, perhaps we'll rise to the occasion in the next couple of decades. We're going to have to, because you're right. We do need to have these kind of uh, broad level theorizations of just what the fuck it is that we're trying to do. Um, of course you can't, you know, you can't, um, what is it? You can't, uh, for fuck's sake, the, the cook shops. What's the what's the Marx line? I always lose it. Um, you know, um, prefiguring and all the rest of it. You yeah, know, you can't perfectly prefigure these things, but you do need to have some but, idea of where you're going. Yeah, um, even if you ultimately fall short or, or things kind of uh, shift in the process. And you know, I mean, I think in in the the British context, you guys got there faster because of your party apparatus. We lagged behind in the U.S., but it might just be our absence of kind of strong party associations or history or what have you, mechanisms. It might just well be our relatively weak party mechanisms that allows us to to uh, it's like the tortoise and the hare. We're the tortoise. You you guys were the hare. You you ran ran out fast and you, you crashed up against the limitations of the kind of uh, bureaucratization of your institutions, whereas our institutions are more malleable. They're kind of like Swiss cheese like. Uh, the Democratic Party is in a lot of uh, areas, locally and statewide. They're just, uh, you know, well, it's um, not really a empty party, chairs. It? It's not it's at all, and, and it's it is. It's a brand, and, and that's a limitation. But it's also uh, means that it's wide open in some respects for somebody like AOC to come in and rebrand. Yeah. Um, of course, that can't be the thing itself, but it doesn't. It doesn't hurt. <laughs> Indeed, uh, it doesn't hurt. So, I think this transatlantic left is really fruitful in that sense. We're kind of uh, fighting and struggling. You know, in uh, in a perfect yin and yang is what I'm, I'm. I'm suggesting everyone read a lot of Eastern philosophy going forward. I guess that's the critical takeaway of today's podcast. Um, yeah. Any parting words about the project? About our friend um, Leo? I know you know you've given a lot of eulogies. You've written some beautiful ones. People should. I'll, I'll link to some of those in the show notes. Any parting words? To quote Shakespeare, he was a man taken for all and all. We will not look upon his luck again. Yeah. That's a fucking, that's the truth. That's been the hardest thing to, to, uh, to handle. Yeah. Um, just the, the one-off nature of this man was in, in, in the loss just makes it that much harder to, to swallow. And and we've lost a few people like that, uh, here in the American and North American left in 2020. And so it's just, it's just uh, one after the other, but I'm going to miss him. I know you'll miss him dearly. Um, you know, I, I always had hoped I told Sam getting in this last week, you know, I, I, I wasn't, I try not to be jealous of my, my, uh, you know, uh, of, of Leo in, in the sense of like, I didn't have him on the show very much. I sort of like felt like I had my chance. I had my moment. Uh, I was very close to him for a period of a couple of years and I wanted other people to get there, get a taste. And so I didn't invite him on the show a lot. I felt like it would be of this weird imposition. Like he's given me so much already. So I kind of, yeah, oh, we let him around. So like five, 10 years from now when he's much older and even more gray and perhaps a couple inches shorter. Um, I can maybe look at him uh, eye to eye. I know you are quite tall yourself. I'm quite, I, yeah. Um, we're, we were about we're, we're about the same height. Maybe. Yeah, hey, you're quite tall yourself, but I always looked up One to the man. One of the few people I can look into the eyes. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> the, fun, the funny thing is, right, well, the interesting thing is, 
is that like Leo had polio when he was a kid. And so for him to be as, as tall as he is, that's it's just a, a success in and of itself. <laughs> it is. It is anything short of a chair, really. It would have been a uh, success, yeah. but yeah, I mean, man, he's what six three, six four. At least it seemed yeah. like it to me in my five ten oh, stature. A giant, you know, uh, a giant in every sense of the world. Anyway, so when he had shrunk a few inches from old age, I expected to meet him again and, and do this in person, and, and you know, I could look at him eye to eye, and, and it may, maybe by then, maybe he would have submitted to a, a, a two three a long interview three-hour interview about his life and his history and, you know, a more kind of biographical approach because he certainly wasn't into that, uh, you know, in, in his did, 70s. He did do a series of, of interviews with the Real News uh, uh-huh. on YouTube yeah, um, where he talks about his upbringing and everything like that. Uh-huh. And I wa- I'd seen them when they first came out and I watched them again in the days after his passing. And yeah. I, I, I think you should watch him, Adam, because that was he was in his backyard, tough. wasn't he? If I'm not mistaken, no, no, no. He's not, not those. He's in a studio. He's okay. in a studio, but um, uh, being interviewed by Paul J. Yeah, but I think you should watch him, Adam, because I found him very comforting. Yeah, I should. And Paul uh, J. was probably one of the only journalists who could have actually gotten him to talk about himself um, yeah you know paul being more of kind of one of leo's contemporaries um but yeah 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 it's a remarkable man anyway i know we'll both miss him dearly and uh i think this has been a, a good tribute i think that uh, leo would have wanted nothing more uh, uh, than uh, to have two people of our age our generation uh you know talking seriously for an hour and a half about uh, about the project yeah uh, i apologize i apologize to your listeners for constantly going back and forth no, that's... Uh, and being a bit scatty, but it's such a h- huge history. Yeah, that it is. you know you can't you do have to constantly flip back and forth to understand how things ended up the way that they ended up. But if I may go right back to the beginning, right before we finish, yeah, please. GameStop, <laughs> Robin Hood, the app. Yeah. who claim to be democratizing finance for all. More really? than half their users now own some form of game st- GameStop stock. I've seen that. Right? And they're, they're stopping people from being able to to trade it. They're only allowing them to close their positions. And who's come out in favor of Wall Street bets? Our girl AOC. This is <laughs> unacceptable, she says. We now need to know more about Robin Hood's decision to block yeah. retail investors from purchasing stock while hedge funds are freely available to trade the yeah. stock as they see fit. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> I, I saw that right before we got on the air. I mean, this is huge. Anybody who, who scoffs at that just hasn't been around politics for very long. Uh, you know, I mean, they, they, and that's in essence what they've done. And Robinhood is wild because here's what's going to have to happen. Okay. So they're going to cash out. Robinhood's going to have to pay the difference. And the hedge fund's going to lose their ass. So it's it's a it's a double it's kind of this weird double whammy where you have to you borrow. So it's a long it's a long story about how that works, but it's it's just it's remarkable that they have absolutely hijacked um, the system for their benefit as opposed to just allowing it to be hijacked for 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 the financiers. It's it's fucking beautiful. And when that story is all over, we shall have to sit down and go through all of it. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's remarkable. Uh, Leo would have chuckled for sure. I don't know that he, you know, I mean, he, I don't know. He, he, I'm know, not sure. It might, he, might be a generational thing. Uh, he might have uh, <laughs> scoffed a little at the, at the, at the shit posting and the shit lordery yeah. that goes on on Reddit. But at the same time, I think he would have, uh, he would have been tickled by it. It's been a pleasure. Come back on, you know, and uh, when that next time everybody seriously uh, pick up a copy of this book. I know we didn't talk about it explicitly, but uh, it is really really fucking important <laughs> as yeah. um, you know to, to prepare ourselves uh, for for the fire next time yeah max shanley thanks again my man my pleasure thanks mate thanks again to the wonderful max shanley always a pleasure to have him on the podcast and if you enjoyed the past i don't know hour and 45 some odd minutes of knowledge and and buffoonery sometimes at least on my on my part uh head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and smash that subscribe button at a level at which you are comfortable as i mentioned in the opening of today's episode a couple hours ago now these episodes are free to listen to but they are not free to make we desperately need your support in order to continue this project i certainly could have uh, taken half of this episode the latter half and you know hidden it behind a paywall rewarded my patrons but i didn't want to do that i know that's the very risky proposition in today's left socialist media ecosystem context a lot of people are putting stuff behind paywalls and i understand why they're doing it i'm not hating folks uh, uh no drama uh no cap actually i have no idea what that means i'm i'm not a gen z but what i'm trying to say is that i'm not hating on anybody for putting stuff behind a paywall there's a rationale to it that's how you build a patreon that's how you support a podcast project but I don't want to do that. I'm trying not to do that as much as possible. So please make this move, this wager, uh, worth the effort uh, by heading over to patreon.com slash dead pundits. All right, everybody. The Leo Panich tribute series will continue with a couple more episodes. It will not be next week. Uh, it will be in coming weeks. We're going to get back to business as usual next week. Uh, but this will not be the last of the Panish series. I assure you we've got several more in the tank. Till next week, Dead Pundit. 